Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey guys, before you watch this episode, make sure to subscribe to our channel and hit that notification bell. Thank you. Hey, man. How are you doing? I'm supposed to ask. <laughs> uh, I've watched this. I know how this goes. <laughs> I'll start by saying, how are you really doing? I... You know, going into this year, I don't know if you ever have this. Uh, you know, sometimes you go into a year and you just know it's going to be a difficult year. I had that going into this year. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's turned out to be very true. Uh, I try to explain to people all the time that although my How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life looks like a dream and what every, especially I think young gentleman aspires to have. It comes with a lot of chaos and chaos is the opposite to peace. And usually what most people want is peace. You know, you sh most, most people when they're like, oh, I want to be happy. What they mean is they want peace in their life mm. because I don't think it matters if you're driving this supercar or that supercar, if you're behind the steering wheel and you're looking out and you're thinking about 
did I send this email or are my assets safe here or this person that I need to take care of or the 150 employees, you know, what's the long-term vision of this company? I think the best situation you can be in is in any shitty car, but looking out and looking at the sunset and with a bit of good music on and that's what makes a good life. Mm. And I think there's seasons in life and I'm in a season of chaos, um, which I embrace. So to answer your question, I'm, this year I'm getting through it. Hmm. Do you feel you might have preempted it, like attracted chaos, if you start the year that way? No, because my life was chaotic last year and it was chaotic the year before. But each year it's, I take on more and more responsibility, but... I was talking to my friend the other day and he, I, I was talking about how this year has kind of been uh, emotionally difficult. And he was like, oh, do you think you have anxiety? And I said, no, I think anxiety comes from you feel bad and you don't know why. Mm-hmm. But when you feel bad, but you know exactly why, and it's a decision that comes from you, from you, I don't think you can call that anxiety. I think that's just you made your bed, now you need to lay in it. And I think I have chosen this life Hmm. and I come to terms with the fact that I don't think my quality of life is as good as someone else. Um, I'd say definitely my best quality of life was, you know, probably three, four years ago where I was one tenth the size, still, you know, very, very successful um, in my own right. Five, Hmm. six employees, a very profitable business, uh, this, that. So... Yeah, I don't think I preempted it. I just think, as I said, sometimes you make your bed and you need to face the consequences that come with that. I have a different take on anxiety. Um, I, I feel that anxiety is the conspiracy theories of your future. Mm. So it's your brain worrying about things that didn't happen. You know, what if uh, my... Uh, business goes down. What if uh, somebody gets sick? What if I lose my father, my mother? And it's all of these things that play in our head. Oh, what if this person cheats on me? You're you're worried about something that didn't happen, might happen, but very maybe low chance. Mm. And I think that's I don't. That's where I've reached with the word anxiety. Mm. You know, because you said if you've already made a decision, you should lay in it. But then do the conspiracy theories of your imagination continue? Because if they do, mm. you're worried. You're not really there, you know? I understand what you're saying, but if you have the conscious decision, let's say, for example, some of the things that you do future pace and you do think of, if you could eradicate those problems today, mm. let's say, for example, you know, you said, uh, you know, where's my business going to be at and this and that, if you're in a position where you don't need to work anymore, You know, so you don't need to face, you don't need to have those problems looming, Mm. but you've chosen a life in which that comes with it. Mm -hmm. I don't believe, I don't believe in this whole idea of like conscious entrepreneur, uh, I'm going to have a business. And and here's the thing, you can have a business that is very respectable, moderately successful, but I'm talking, if you're trying to perform at the top, 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 top level, your mind is going to be a minefield. Mm. And there's no getting past that. 
I don't believe in this whole, you know, you just wake up and you do, you know, an hour of work and you have no, you just enjoy all of your wealth and this and that. You can do that after you sell your company, but you selling your company comes from five, 10, 15, 20, how many, however many decades of stress and worry mm. and responsibility because you are the captain of the ship. You know, my team, I hate the word boss. I don't let anyone call me boss. Um, so my team in the last couple of years started calling me captain. And I feel like that's something I'm a little bit more comfortable with because that's what I am. I'm the captain of a ship. And as the captain of a ship, you have to decide which direction are we taking this. And that's a big responsibility. Mm. And you don't need that responsibility. You don't need the responsibility. You can retire tomorrow. So I feel like it would be foolish for you to wake up one morning and, and you're having an off day or you're feeling tired or maybe a little anxious or maybe a little not blissful. And I think it'd be foolish for you to sit there and wonder why it's happening or sit there and resent those feelings when you made that decision. Mm. You can close your entire operation tomorrow. You can live a happy piece of life, but you made that decision. So it comes with its drawbacks. And I think this is why I like to make this so clear to people because I'm in a very unique position where, you know, I started uploading on YouTube when I was 15. So I have eight years of documentation of everything from starting my first business to having my first success having my first massive loss, hiring my first employee, my first employee leaving after three days because I was 17 and, you know, who the hell would work for a 17-year-old? You know, quite clearly, he doesn't know what he's doing. So I've documented that entire process all the way to where I am now. So I just feel a responsibility to tell people, if you want this life, it comes with these drawbacks. And I try to, <clears throat> I feel a responsibility to tell people, hey, I've been through it all, so let me be honest with you of what is actually a good life. Because mm. most of what people want, most of what people want is what looks the best, but that isn't necessarily what is the best life. Mm. So. <clears throat> the, there was a video I made and I said something along what you said, is that everything has a tax. Everything. Even your watch, your clothes, your house, your... It comes with something. Correct. At the price of something. But social media doesn't show the price. Mm. It just shows that nice picture at the end with a nice edit. Mm -hmm. Or that beautiful moment out of a vacation that maybe you had six arguments, but that nice picture by the beach. Mm. You're not going to put the argument. So that's the deceitful part of social media. You know, painting a very... Uh, beautiful, uh, sometimes perfect picture, but people don't understand. And somebody can look at you and like, look at this, uh, you know, brat. He's rich and God knows what, and he's so lucky. God knows where he got the money from. Very easy to throw. Mm. But then they don't know the actual story. 15 years old, I did this, I got rejected 62 times. Da, 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 da. It's all of this compilation of incremental success to actually be successful. So that's the tricky thing. And I think you said something that I also will tell you that you're wrong and I'm wrong. <laughs> it's if we quit today, we'll be some miserable people, me and you. Mm. We, let's say we could. 
ويكويت خلاص نو بزنس ناثينج I'll give you one week. May not, okay, I'll give you a month. Hmm. You will be so uneasy because you need to feel valuable and productive and, and, and. So I could have told you, why didn't you stop two, three years ago when you said you were at the one-tenth size of you? No, you're, listen, you are 100% correct in saying that. But I think this is why it's so important to have the self-awareness of who you are as a person. You have a God-given talent. I have a God-given talent. I, it gets to a certain point in your career where you have so much as, an, as a nest egg that you stop tomorrow and you still make millions of dollars a year just from your investments. Mm. So then you have to ask, why does this person keep doing this? Quite clearly, there's something inside of them. Mm-hmm. If you want the best quality of life as a footballer, go be the 100th best footballer in the world because you're still going to make... 10, 20 million dollars a year. So what's the point in being number one? Because number one, you have so much pain and you have so much work that goes into it and all the things that people want, you never actually get to enjoy because you're always focused on being the best. Mm. So you're correct in saying that you and I will be bored. A hundred percent. I know that. That's why I don't stop. Because for me, it's like, what else would I do? If I sold my businesses, if I packed it all up, if I just, you know, uh, laid all of my focus on my investment portfolio and just chilled. I mean, you know, I was even talking with uh, uh, my family office and my wealth managers a couple of days ago. You know, U.S. bonds are at five, five to five and a half percent. You throw your money into a 10-year bond, that's it. You're set. You never have to work. It's the safest investment possible unless the U.S. collapses. So when you've got that situation and a person is still working and is still striving, that's because that's unique to them. Mm. I look at someone, I have never once in my life looked at someone who moves to Southeast Asia and lives off of $5,000 a month, even though they could have taken their business to multi-millions and multi-eight figures a year. I never look at someone like that as, you know, why are you making that decision? If that's true to you, mm. And if that's in alignment as to who you are as a person, then that's beautiful. I think you need to live a life that is in alignment to who you know you are. And it might take some time to figure that out. Mm. You know, for some people, they want a good life. And maybe once they get the things that they want, maybe they realize, oh, you know what? I would much rather make substantially less money, but have a stress-free life. But you won't know in, until you get there, I guess. Mm. Who are you? When no one's around. I'm a person that thinks about everyone around me and thinks about, I'll give you a small example. I have a weird little, um, weird little habit with my friends, uh, friends, my mom, any, and basically anyone who's around me. If I see their devices around, I go charge it because I'm like, oh, what happens if they run out of battery? Or, you know, next time they're, you know, like I'm so, the RAM that's in my mind is at full capacity at all times because I'm always just looking around, analyzing, and I worry about other people a lot. And I'm always trying to think about other people and thinking, how can I make their life better? And 
you know, I, one of my favorite books is a book called Atlas Shrugged. I actually have a tattoo of it right here. And I guess one of my, one of my philosophies in life is, as I said, I feel like I have this God-given talent of absorbing a lot of stress mm. and it not breaking me. And I know that's a talent of mine. So if I have this talent, I feel like I have to make the most of it. Mm. So who I am as a person when no one else is watching is, I feel like I'm a protector. Hmm. Nice word. Um, your name is Arabic Islamic. You know that, I'm sure. Faith. Ah, you're Muslim? Yeah. By faith? Okay. Where are you from? From a place in Russia called Dagestan. Dagestan. Is it where Khabib is from? Correct. Ah. Before Khabib, basically no one knew where it was, so I have yeah, he him, helped me now. him and Hasbullah to thank for that. Uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> okay. Your childhood in three words. Tumultuous. Quick. And a blessing. Hmm. And what's your best childhood memory? Probably any time I got to play with my mom. You know, I'm an only child, so I had no one to hang around with, no one to play with. I'm naturally an introvert, so I didn't really have many friends in school. I never really mingled with many people. So I think my favorite childhood memory is any time that I just got to build Lego with my mom or you know, she played football with me. And I think it's my favorite memory now because I've come to realize just how boring it is for a parent. I guess I've come to realize like, As a mother, you're there trying to entertain your child for hours and hours upon end and doing all the stuff that you don't care about, but you know it makes your child happy. So you're willing to sacrifice watching a, you know, a cartoon on TV to, to be able to spend time with your child or you know, uh, making this Lego set or you, whatever it may have been at the time. So mm -hmm. I think now I look back very fondly at those memories uh, and I understand that You know, being a single mother is very hard, but, you know, being a single mother to an only child is even harder mm -hmm. um, because there is no siblings where at least you can alleviate some of that, you know, that, uh, that time and that playtime. So I'd say any of those memories I, I cherish quite, mm -hmm. quite deeply in my heart now. Worst childhood memory. So there was one time when I was uh, eight years old. I moved to London when I was four. My mom and my my mom and my stepdad uh, dated for a couple years. They met in Russia. You know, they trialed out living together, and you know, eventually he proposed. So that's how I ended up moving to London when I was four years old. 
And, uh, you know, that marriage fell apart quite quickly. Uh, I remember one time when I was eight years old, I picked up the home phone. And on the other line, it's, uh, hi, this is uh, uh, London Escorts. Uh, we're uh, looking, uh, you know, we're calling regarding your booking with, you know, my stepdad's name. And I was eight years old, bear in mind. You don't, you don't quite know what that is at eight. And, you know, my mom, my mom obviously asks, who was that? And I say, oh, it was a London Escorts, you know, calling about my stepdad. And obviously I see the, the sadness wash over her face. And, I, you know, it's so funny, even as an eight-year-old, I was like, no, 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 mom, you don't understand. They like, because my, my stepdad was arriving from airport. You know, my stepdad wasn't around much. Uh, he was only in London maybe three or four months a year. I was like, no, no, mom, you don't understand. They, they escort him from the airport to the house, like they're like an escort service. And I don't know how, but it, even when I was eight, I, I knew what that was. I had that like gut feeling. And I think that when you ask me three words to describe my childhood, uh, I think I said quick. And the reason I said quick was because I think my tra- childhood lasted until I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. After that, I wouldn't call it childhood because I had to think like an adult. So I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily say that that was the worst, but I, I think that was definitely a turning point where I realized like, yeah, I have, I'm probably exposed to the world a little bit more than, you know, the other kids my age. Mm. Did you feel guilty that you were honest about who was on the call? Yeah, Mm. I did right after, but I, as I said, it's because I didn't know what that meant, but I had a gut feeling Mm. and my mom's, reaction confirmed that gut feeling to mm. me. So I guess I couldn't have known beforehand, but her reaction, her reaction solidified it for me. And for an eight-year-old to quickly turn that around with a lie to justify that the call is, don't worry, mom, it's not that bad, it's an airport. That was very quick thinking at a very young age because you, you didn't like the reaction you saw. So you tried to mitigate the sorrow that mm. you made your mom feel and unintentionally. I think that's part, part of being a protector. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, you see how you like to charge people's phones? <laughs> it's, it started there. It started where at an seven or eight-year-old Iman uh, hurt someone, not directly, but as a child, sometimes you think you take the blame, Mm. although there's zero blame on you. You were just a messenger. Um, But an eight-year-old doesn't think like that. They think, oh, like when people get divorced, the child thinks it's their fault. It's like, what did I do? And the, the mom or dad were like, it's not you, but the child grows up feeling Maybe I did something wrong or I was a burden on my parents and that's why they divorced. Until you grow up and you start to have a rational mind. But that eight-year-old Iman 
So, shit, I just broke my mom's heart. And I don't want to ever do it again. Mm. Correct. Mm. What was the first word you used? You used a complicated word on your childhood. Tumultuous. What does that mean? Rocky. Rocky. Okay. And does, was the Rocky pre-8 or post-8? I think uh, from the age of maybe five or six, I was aware. Mm. My uh, my stepdad was quite a, quite a strict character. He went to boarding school when he was four years old. So, um, you know, it didn't matter that I was four years old. If I dropped the fork, it's not good. Uh, didn't matter that I was four or five and I was learning English. You know, my handwriting had to be better. So I think it instilled a lot of fear in me. But I don't think I necessarily minded that. Mm. I think maybe in the moment it was tough. I think definitely when you're younger, you wonder, you know, why is this person picking on me? Like, I don't get it. But growing up now and looking at the way people are, you know, especially my generation, the people who are around my age, it wasn't nice, but I learned respect. And I learned that some people are to be feared. And I think that's important. I think there are certain people in your life you should fear the consequences. And maybe not as intense as I experienced it. <laughs> um, I think it's important. Hmm. How was it for um, a boy to grow up with, an, with no father, if I'm not mistaken, hmm. and then a stepfather that left? So it's two, two questions. So my biological father was an alcoholic abusive. So, yeah, he was out the picture by the time I was born. And, you know, I wish I could sit here and say that it was super traumatic and this and that. And, you know, uh, it really messed me up. No, having a dad, I, I'd be lying if I said that. It's when you don't have something, it seems normal to you. Mm. And my stepdad, although he was my stepdad, he wasn't around much. So it was almost, he almost felt like this weird disciplinarian teacher who I saw three or four months of the year mm. and was incredibly smart and taught me a lot. But I wouldn't necessarily call him a father. I wouldn't necessarily call him dad. Mm. So I can comfortably say that I never really had a father growing up. And I think that goes one of two ways. Either, well, majority of the time, it goes 
disastrously wrong. And if you look across every single metric, growing up in a, a single parent household, which obviously most of the time means this, you know, only having your mother around is one of the biggest disadvantages you can have in life. Mm. For the very small percentage of people that it works out for, I think it works out brilliantly because I don't have any, if you have a father, sometimes you'll take on 90% of his beliefs. Sometimes you'll take on 60% of his beliefs. Sometimes you'll take 10% of his beliefs. But the issue is what if his beliefs are flawed? Mm. Then you're perpetuating a lineage of broken thinking. So my big advantage and the reason I would call my childhood a blessing, although it's very difficult, and there's certain reminders here and there, you know, I have people in my team. I have friends of mine, simple things. They know how to fish. Their dad taught them. They know how to tie a tie. Their dad taught them. They know how to do simple things. Change a tire. Their dad taught them. I never had anyone teach me these things. I think that's probably the only time I feel a little like, and I I really wish I had a dad. Mm -hmm. I wish I had someone to teach me that. But I think that's also, going back to what I was saying, that's foolish to think that every dad is like that. Because quite frankly, most dads aren't like that. Most dads go to work, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. Most dads go to work for 12 hours a day. They hate their work. They're uninspired. They don't... They have a very sour view on the world. And that translates into their children. So as I said, my big advantage is, you know, I had a blank slate. I could be the man that I wanted to be. There was no one telling me as a family, this is what we believe in. You know, my mom, I love her to bits. She's taught me important family values. And you know, there's certain things that I take from my mom when it comes to relationships, when it comes to family. For me, I don't believe you ever quit on your family. Like, I just don't believe in that. It doesn't matter how difficult things get. Your family is your family. That's just the way I was raised. And I'm grateful for my mom instilling those things in me. But on the flip side, when it comes to worldview, I feel like that is the role of a father Mm. to instill in their children, this is the worldview. This is what we believe in as a family. This is what we stand for. And this is what we will tolerate. And this is what we will not tolerate. And as I said, I didn't have that. Mm. So the beauty of it was I could build my own worldview. As a child, when you didn't have a father, then a new guy shows up. In your experience, did you feel, finally, let me latch on to him? Or from the beginning, you're like, "Uh, I'm not even going to risk it because he might also go. Do you know what I mean? Because my biological father was never around. It was never like, I'd never, there was no sense of abandonment. Okay. Because I'd technically never been abandoned. Mm. I just, nothing had ever been there in the first place. Mm. So there was no sense of loss. So, listen, I never thought my stepdad was my dad. I never, as I said, I never looked at him as a father because... I knew at the end of the day, listen, he's not my dad. 
So I don't think that was really an issue of mine. Tell me about your mother. Her name is Mu'minat? Mu'minat. Mu'minat. Okay, tell me about her. <laughs> she's a very difficult woman, and she'll hate that I said that. Uh, she's Russian, but also Dagestan, where I'm from. It's a little bit more Middle Eastern. Mm. She's the youngest of seven in the Soviet Union, so... You know, she has a lot of philosophies that didn't serve me as I grew up. But she believes in the things that I think are important as a mother, which is you put your children first. Mm. I do believe that. I believe that, you know, being parents and being a mother is the most selfless thing you can do. And I also think it's the most honorable thing you can do. It makes me very upset that we live in a world where someone asks a woman, oh, what do you want to do in the future? And they feel ashamed to say, I want to be the best mother in the world. It makes me genuinely upset that we live in a world like that. Because I think that's the most important role. I think that's the most important job you could ever have. I don't know what would have happened to me if I didn't have my mom. I wouldn't be here. I can guarantee I would have been a very, very, very nasty person. I would have been a menace to the world because I would, I'd have all those lessons from a young age and I would know how to handle stress and I would have grown up quickly, but I never would have had someone to match that with compassion and love. So as I said, it's, it's scary for me to think about what would have happened if I didn't have the mom that I do. Mm. But your mom is your mom. And I think, you know, I think maybe it's a little different in some cultures, but the way I was raised is your mom's always right. And although I have gone against a lot of things that she wanted in life because I felt like it was better for us and obviously, you know, I guess it's somewhat worked out. Um, at the end of the day, even here in my position, I'll be honest, in, a, in business, I am a menace. I'm a savage. I'm a person who has experienced so much so young, and I'm very, respect is important to me. And if I can clearly see a situation isn't correct, that's it. Mm. When it comes to my mom, that all goes out the window. If, you know... My mom, if we're sat down for lunch for three hours, it happens, I'll be honest, it happens a lot of time. We sit down for three, for three hours for lunch and my mom shouts at me and you have to take it. You have no choice. And I think that's, you know, I, I think that has to do with the whole respect thing I was saying. You know, I grew up in a culture where you respect your parents. You may not agree with them. You may not agree with their worldview, but you have to show up and you have to respect it. And to me, that's very important. And that's also why I keep my mom very close. Mm. I mean that in a sense that she's very close to my heart, but also geographically, wherever I go, I take her with me. Um, nice. So. Random question. What is the strangest dream you've had? 
I think the strangest dream I had was, and this is obviously the scary thing sometimes about dreams, they seem so real. I had a son, but my son was me. Hmm. And it's obviously just so weird where you're in this lucid state, you're in this other world, and you're having this dream that seems so vivid, and you know, you're talking to this person, and this person is you, but also in this dream, it's your son. So I would say that was quite a, that was one of those dreams when you wake up, you have to grab a pen and paper. <laughs> the conversation was interesting, like you would remember it? Yeah, after. the conversation was interesting. There was some life lessons from that. I think it reminded me of my childish spirit hmm. and to never lose that. And although, as I said, I, I think I'm at a stage of life and there's seasons in life, I'm in a season that fits me for right now. But I'm also in a season that's very callous. Mm. I'm in a season where emotions and internalizing emotions and experiencing them in their entirety is not the number one priority. So, although I, you know, I, a lot of, as I go through life, a lot of the things I experience, you know, usually I put it into my shoulders. I have quite tense shoulders. I put it into my shoulders, and I'm, a, I, you know, I just swallow that stress. Uh, I still, at the end of the day, never want to lose that childlike spirit, and I feel like I've been able to hold on to it. Hmm. Iman, you left a private school. And after a lot of investment also from your mother. So this is one of the things you were stubborn to go against your mother. Like you said, a few things. Uh, was it a difficult decision to decide I'm making enough money, uh, sub enough to pay rent, I think you mm -hmm. said, or somewhat, that you say, if I make this amount of money, I'm going to leave the private school in the UK. Anywhere I'm wrong, please correct me. Mm -hmm. um, But, and you, your mother is so dear to you. So she's pushing for this, at least finish maybe school. And she's put money because it's not public school. And then you say, no, I'm going to leave. Hmm. How is that? Listen, it was a big, it caused a lot of contention. Because obviously, you know, my mom had given up her best years. Uh, she'd moved to London. You know, she'd, ended up in this marriage and I think I said talking about values my mom is under the impression that you don't leave mm. when you're in a marriage you stay in a marriage and then you know eventually my stepdad filed for divorce and you know they broke up and you know we were plunged into a lot of financial difficulty but the one thing she also made sure she did was invest in my education and me as a person you know my mom She had the same clothes for 10 years and nothing was beneath her. So it was very difficult when, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm 17 years old and I'm like, well, I'm going to drop out of school. And that didn't start at 17. I actually started at 16. I started massaging the idea in. And I think she always knew that that was the path I was going because, as I said, by the time that I was 11, 
we had to fend for ourselves. So I told my mom when I was 13, 14, I said, there's absolutely zero chance I go to college. No chance at all. Because I'm not paying for it. You can't pay for it. So, and I'm definitely not going to take on student debt in order to make it happen. So for years and years, that was affirmed in her mind. But I think there's a massive difference between not going to university or college and dropping out of school. Mm. And I believe everyone should finish, finish school, by the way. I believe everyone should complete school. I think I have very strong opinions on colleges and universities, and um, I don't think they act in accordance to people's best interests. But school is school. I think, I think if you, unless you're in a crazy situation like I was, finish school. Mm. Now, my situation was at the point in which I dropped out of school, I was making 15000 a month. And I'll be honest, I was also supporting my mom at that point. So I guess I kind of had a little bit more leverage to work with and be like, mm. listen, this is working. You know it's working. But it was a, it was a difficult period for sure. Mm. It wasn't easy. You think, you know, this idea that you should never have a plan B because if you have a plan B in your subconscious, you can quit on plan A. Mm-hmm. Do you think, because it sounds like you only had one plan. It's, it's starting to happen. I'm not going to just stay in school for the sake of staying in school. Mm. Who's going to pay college? Who's going to, you're not going to, I, ha- I have no choice. It's like these footballers who became footballers because they had to leave the conditions they were in. There was mm-hmm. no other option. You think that works out better? I think when you have nothing, you just need a plan A. Because even if plan A doesn't work out, you're back to where you initially were. Mm. But I think if you're, if you went to university or college and you're making very good money, you know, let's say, I think, you know, everyone, and this is another thing I try to really instill in people, I think for some reason everyone wants to shit on making 80 grand a year these days, but if you're making 80 grand a year and you're 25 or 26, that's a good income. Mm. You know, so if you have a high paying job, you are potentially losing out on something. So I don't think that's one of those situations where you burn, burn the boats and you go all in on a business. Mm. I don't see why you can't start a business or start your next career step with two hours a day and prove to yourself first mm. that you want it. You know, I didn't drop out of school when I signed my first client. I dropped out of school once I was making a substantial amount of money and once I proved to myself that I want this and I can do this. Now, as you go further down the line, much further down the line, you need many plans. You need a plan A, B, C, D, on and on. You need to know that if something changes because, you know, nothing in life is constant, and markets and industries change. That's why I always try to tell people as well, this whole passive income thing is bullshit. Passive income, as a concept, what you're doing is you're buying yourself time. I might put in a lot of work now for six months and that front loads two years of success, but eventually that's gonna start to decay and crumble. Someone's gonna come in and realize the market is brutal, whatever market you're in. So, 
that's really all to say that things change. Mm. And because things change, especially further down the line, you'd need to have ways which you can pivot depending on where the market goes. But when you first start off, I think the real question someone needs to ask themselves is what do I have to lose? If you're living with your parents, you know, in your mom's basement, you got nothing to lose. Go 100% all in. If you're 36 and you have a family, I think it would be absolutely disgusting for you to drop everything and go all in on one thing that might not work out. As long, unless you have that conversation with your partner, with your wife, and say, hey, listen, I really want to do this thing, but it might be a rocky road for the next couple of years. Are you okay with this? Mm. Are you okay to ride through this with me? Or do you think that I'm putting the family at too much risk or too much danger? So I think the main thing people need to ask themselves is, what do I have to lose? And mm. if the answer is something, you need to think about it. If the answer is a lot, you need to really think about it. <laughs> what is Iman a fear or an insecurity you've struggled with throughout your life? Not being good enough. Hmm. But I don't know if that's a bad thing. Could be both. I think anyone who achieves great things in their life, they're always asking themselves, Hmm. is this good enough? And going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, I think that's why people need to understand the chaos and the mental burden that comes with pushing something to an outstanding level, Mm. to something that's not normal, that's far, far beyond normal. So I go to bed at every night and throughout the day I ask myself in all areas of life, Mm. am I doing enough? And the answer is never no, but that's the game. And it's an infinite game. It's a game you can keep playing. And that's the fun of the game. It's true. Everlasting student. Um, What does success mean to you? And this stage of your life, because it could change. So I was going to say success means living in accordance to the season of your life. Mm. So this season of my life is about taking on this burden and taking on the stress. And, you know, the next season of my life could be, and I very much hope it's about family. Mm. And your priorities change. So right now I'm like a you know, bodybuilder that pretty much only trains trust, uh, chest, you mm. know. Yeah, he still trains calves and does this and that, but he's the main focus is on one area of his life. Mm. And the main focus of my life right now, you know, I'll tell you something in full honesty, full transparency. The way that I live right now is not cohesive to being the best partner that I could potentially be, to being the best son I could potentially be. My interpersonal relationships... It's not cohesive to that because I have so much burden and so much stress on my shoulders and so many things to manage at any given time and such a massive organization, as I said, to be the captain of and make sure that 
our ship is safe and it's going in the right direction. I forget birthdays all the time. I don't call my mom every day. And if you're a good friend or a good son, you do those things, mm. or at least you strive to. Now, that's where I am right now. In 10 years or five years, it could be a totally different story. Mm. And as you said, there's a tax on everything. My mom lives an incredible life, but I don't think there's many sons, you know, who buy their mom a $4 million house their dream house and also call them every single day is a tax to this. Mm. So I think for the season of my life, there's areas where I'm really missing the mark, where I'm not showing up in the best way that I could be, but that's because I know that I'm going to put this aside for now because I'm focused on this here. And, you know, I don't want to live the same life forever. Mm there will be that next season. I will shed my skin at some point. But what if, Iman, your mom says, fuck the $4 million house. I want an apartment, but I want my son. I would tell her, mother, you're asking me to give up on who I want to be. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that that is an unfair ask. And you're right. She would much, much rather, you know, my mom, my mom doesn't give a shit. You know, she really doesn't. Mm. She doesn't care about all this lavish stuff. The reason I know that is because usually after I buy, us, buy her the most lavish stuff, we get into the worst arguments. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's so, not, not her love language, obviously. <laughs> no, quite clearly. <laughs> But at least we're aware. Yeah. You know, and she knows that, you know, I said I have such a hectic schedule. I do my best. You know, once a week we have... you know, mother-son time. She would like it to be a lot more. But as I said, she knows that I am living true to what is right for my current life situation. Mm. And that molds and that changes over time. So I agree that in some ways in life, you need to be selfless. But in some ways, you also need to be selfish in the sense of, I think when it comes to your, your morals and your principles and your dreams and your aspiration, no one can take that away from you. Mm-hmm. I think it would be unfair for someone to take that away from you. I agree. Um, in 2020, Iman had to face anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts that were also from before. You said very maybe tampering with it, but in 2020, the monster was there. Mm. Tell me about that. Yeah, listen, it was an interesting period in my life. Because I think it's... There's a difference between um, thinking of ending it and thinking, how am I going to end it? Those are two different conversations. And once you start properly planning how you're going to do it, and how to do it in a way that makes it seem like it's an accident so there's no collateral damage when you leave, you're in a much scarier place in life. Mm. I'd say for anyone who is going through that, there's a couple things. 
you know, I got it through it relatively quickly. I was going through some health stuff at the time. And sometimes in life, sometimes you're very fragile. And when you're fragile, the demons try to come in. And there's a lot of things that when you're strong, you can absorb and you can, you can fight those things away. When you're fragile, you need to go back to, you need to go back to the base and you need to strip away everything. And what that looked like for me was no caffeine, no alcohol, no caffeine, even my food. I went down, I stripped away all food and I did an elimination diet. All I did for one month was eat salt, steak, and water, that was it. And then I started adding things and I started to see, you know, most people live their life and even me these days, sometimes you eat a meal and you don't even know what has caused you to feel bad. What ingredient in that? You know, you might feel uh, all of a sudden, you know, you might get hot flush, you might get uh, irritated, you might feel a little anxious, whatever it may be. So even down to our foods, mm. we don't even realize what's causing that reaction. Music. I cut out all music mm. for months. I genuinely believe, you know, most of the music we listen to these days is truly demonic. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes I like to listen to Drake. But that's because I'm in a place right now where I'm not fragile. I can listen to it, but it does, it, I feel like those demons don't come in. Mm. So for anyone who's going through that period of life, you need to treat yourself like you need to strip things back and treat yourself like this little baby. And you need to remove any of the way that these demons can come in and put their claws into you. Mm. you if you're going through that period, you, you have to be celibate. No dates, no female interactions. You can only focus on you and just you. You need to focus on clearing your gut. You know, I know that I'm... Maybe I'm a little on the harsher side when it comes to depression and suicidal thoughts and this and that. You know, I do look at some people who are going through these things and they eat McDonald's three times a week and they're suffering from leaky gut and they drink 400 milligrams of caffeine a day and on the weekends they go and get shit-faced with their friends and they're swiping on Tinder every day. And I go, if you're going to do depressing things, how do you expect to not end up depressed? So for me, if you can strip away all of that and you're still facing that, then I think there's merit to it. Mm. I stripped away all of that. It took a couple months. It took a couple months of really being gentle with myself, but it was gone. Mm. And I think having good friends around you is very important. I think being vocal about it is very important. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with going through difficult periods in your life. I think that's a beautiful thing to experience. I don't think it's beautiful to stay in that place for three or four years and not take radical action and try to change things. I genuinely 
I also want to preface this by saying I'm no expert. I can only just speak to my worldview, what I experienced, and my personal opinion. I'm sure you can get much more, much better scholars on about the topic. This is just my personal opinion that for most people, if they stopped watching porn, if they stopped going on mindless dates, if they cut out any music with lyrics, any music with lyrics, if they cut out caffeine and alcohol and also did some sort of stripped back diet, you know, for me, it was more towards the carnivore route. It could be a vegan route. Mm. I don't care. The point is you need to understand what was the thing that you just ate that made you feel that way. Because bloating isn't normal. Mm. But most people don't realize that. They live, go through their life and think that, oh, uh, you know, I, I eat food and I get bloated. That's your body literally telling you, I don't agree with this. So for me, if you can go through all that stuff, it is my personal viewpoint that 90% of people will be cleared of their depression or their anxiety. Mm. Now for the 10%, it goes a lot deeper. There's some people that have truly gone through things. Mm. And I'll be honest, you know, I'm giving you the light version here today. I probably need another four or five hours to talk about, you know, I, I don't blame my mom because it's how you, you raised in Russia. But, you know, my mom used to, you know, hit me all the time, be the shit out of me. But that's just normal in that culture. And she was going through a lot and a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure from my stepfather. You know, it was really coming from my stepdad that he's not good enough. You know, he, he needs to learn how to use his fork. He needs to write better. He needs to uh, know the answer to this or how, you know, he's six years old. How has he not read Charles Dickens yet? Uh, so, you know, I've gone through a lot of stuff for sure that was traumatizing to me growing up. But when I cleared myself of any of these entrance, when I blocked any of the entrances for these demons to get in and for that dark energy to get in, it went away. Hmm. And you don't need to live your entire life like that. But when you're going through those periods and you're feeling extra fragile and you're feeling like, you know, the devil is knocking on your door, you better make sure that you have no entrances. You have no ways for him to get in. What is Iman uh, personal uh, flaw that if you could fix in yourself, you would? Probably not meeting people mm. with where their love language is. Mm. You know, I read that book when I was... Five love languages? Yeah, I read, that, I read that book when I was 15. Mm. Me and my girlfriend at the time, we both read it. You know, nice. We had a few, I gave her a few relationship books, that, stuff like Way of Superior Men. Mm. And we both read these books. Now there's a link. You just send it on WhatsApp and, you know, <laughs> and you're done. And I understand it very mm. well as a concept. Mm. 
but understanding a concept and living it are two very different things. Mm -hmm. And I am very bad at verbalizing the appreciation because sometimes I feel like, obviously, I have a very pragmatic view on things, you know, so let's say, you know, let's say with a, a girlfriend, you know, you feel like you being there in the relationship shows that you want to be there because if you weren't there, if you didn't want to be there, you would just leave. Mm. So you feel like in a sense, your presence already shows or, you know, said for me, it's uh, the love language that I'm best at is, you know, acts of service. <laughs> so you understand, you know, it's acts of service and gifts. Mm. So for me, it's like doing things for people mm. and it could even be small things like, you know, charging their, <laughs> charging their devices when Service. they're not around. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's their love language. Mm. They might not even care. And that would hurt you because you're like, I love you. Exactly. Look at me, I'm charging your phone. Exactly. So, you know, even going back to the example of my mom or, you know, even some of my friends, they may not give a shit. And I know it's not like I'm unaware of it. I know that their love language is words of affirmation. Mm. I know that. Does that mean that I go out of my way to do it? Mm. Not as much as I should do. And I think in life, you know, what makes a great person is how much can they lean into the thing that's most uncomfortable for them? Mm. That's the thing that's most uncomfortable. And I think it's important to have these conversations because I know a lot of the audience and I feel like especially in kind of the world we live in, the generation we live in, you know, a lot of dudes, especially I like to speak to the guys, they think, oh, you know, I get my girl a Birkin bag and I get my mom a this and I get them that and that shows my love. It's like, yeah, maybe for a specific kind of girl. Mm -hmm. Or maybe she feels just as empty as she did before the gifts. That doesn't mean that you have made her feel any more loved. So I'd say that's probably my biggest flaw is, I understand it, I, I conceptual, conceptualize it, I, I, I see it for what it is, mm. but it's the difficult thing. And I try my best to do the difficult thing, but it's, and you know, the tricky thing, this is where ego comes into play. So let's say we're friends. And for me, uh, let's say I'm the gifting guy. And let's say it's not your love language at all. So I bring you a gift and you don't use it. And you don't even, you just say, oh, thanks, bro. That's it, right? Now I'm hurt mm -hmm. that my love wasn't, that was lost in translation. You didn't appreciate, I, I feel my love was this much, but it translated this much to the person that I care about. So now it's an ego game. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how the fuck is he still ungrateful? I can't believe this guy. I don't even want him to be my friend. He's not my friend. I'm offended. Mm -hmm. When I bring down my ego, I'm like, wait, let me ask Iman, what does he even care about? Mm -hmm. And you're like, bro, I just want to go out for Karak and I just want to have tea with you and go for a walk. Mm -hmm. Quality time. Correct. So now I'm like, ah, okay, it's not about me. 
if I actually care about Iman, I don't need to do what I like to get. Maybe I like gifts. Mm. Doesn't mean he likes gifts. And that's the middle ground. That's where the ego is under control and you're starting to think, ah, this person like this. And it's not easy because it's a very selfless act, you know? Mm. And it's not about what comes naturally. What comes naturally is you charging phones and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, are you arrogant? What does arrogance mean to you? I know people accuse you of being arrogant. So maybe if I add to the question, do you understand when people call you arrogant? This is the issue. What would they define as arrogance? What is arrogance today? Uh, Showing off uh, private jet uh, brands, um, the cigar, the, Mm. I don't know, the money. You know, that's, I guess, what's defined today as a show off or a arrogant person. No, I don't think I'm arrogant hmm. because you can go look on my YouTube and I was 16 years old and I was, you know, there's videos of me, I'm six, seven months into not signing another client. I got my first win in my business. I'm looking for my second and I'm like, yeah, listen, I sent 20 proposals this week and nothing. So I was honest. I tried to relay honestly, what am I going through? Mm. When I had success in the business, the initial success, I relayed honestly, this is what I'm going through. When the business scaled up and in one weekend, I lost three clients that made up 40% of my business's revenue. I said, hey guys, here's what happened. Here's what I learned from it. And that has gone on and gone on and gone on. And I'll be honest, there's things that to this day, I think that's one of the difficult things about where I am uh, with my business and my social media is there's a lot of things I don't talk about because it's too unrelatable. And I feel like it doesn't serve a purpose to talk about it. But the life that I live, you know, I'd say the most arrogant thing I could do is come in here and tell you that my life is perfect. That's true arrogance, when everything needs to seem perfect. My life is what it is. You know, it's, it's quite funny the other day, you know, those uh, Instagram like highlights, the memories, I got one of those. And it was me in May of 2018. Mm. So five years ago. And it's a photo of me. Uh, I took the photo, cross-legged, exactly as I am now. Rolex on my wrist and a cigar in my hand. I looked at it, dressing like a grandpa, which has been my style over the years. I never dress the coolest, I'd say, but you know, it's my style. And I just looked at it and I laughed. I was like, fuck, man. Nothing's changed, has it? <laughs> You know, things are a little different, but I won't deny the fact that I live a lavish lifestyle. But I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Mm. As I said, there's aspects to my life which I feel like is so unrelatable and serves absolutely zero purpose to talk to the audience about. 
because it applies to one in 100,000 people, then why even get the, you know, the other 99 odd, et cetera, thousand to think about it. So, you know, to answer your question about arrogance, I am living life the way that I would, whether there was cameras or no cameras. Mm. And I live life authentic to me. There's a lot of things I know a lot of people would do because it's considered cool. Cars, for example. You know, I only bought my first car this year. I'd made tens and tens of millions of dollars. Never bought a car. So I think really that's to show that I like the things I like. Mm. And over time that changes, but a lot of it stays the same. So I live life true to me. And if people find that arrogant, so be it. Yeah, I mean, somebody will look and tell you, okay, you want relatable content. What is relatable about a private jet? And the fact that you can look eight years prior and see every single thing that I've ever done mm-hmm. and go, oh, wow. You can. You can too. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that I do, as I, as I mentioned. There's a lot of things that I buy that I don't talk about. A lot of properties I own, businesses I own, I don't talk about. Yeah, how did you make your money, if I can ask? As you're 23, I know you, I don't know much, but I know you did the agency and you really worked hard on the agency, on the retainers, on the paid ads and promos, if I'm not mistaken. But that's, it's also still very difficult to make a lot of money that way. It's one of the easiest businesses dare I say, even the easiest business to make a million dollars a year in profit, maybe $2 million a year in profit, you're not going to make 10 million a year profit from that. You're correct. So I ran that business for six years. And in that time, towards the tail end of it, I launched an e-learning company. Because mm. obviously, because I had this interesting thing where people could see me from 15 and see me when I was 17 or 18, and I'm you know, in my client's office and I'm like, oh, you know, this is the, you know, I just got out the meeting with the CEO of Oura Ring. They're a client of mine now, or I just got, you know, this is me and uh, my client that's flown me out in New York first class to, you know, consult their team. Because I had all that, obviously everyone was asking, how do you do this? Mm. And, you know, that's why eventually in tail end of 2019, early 2020, I I launched a company called Grow Your Agency, mm. specifically for agency owners. And I, you know, I had that company for a couple of years, and that company leeway into my first ever software company. So my first ever software company was I partnered up with one of my clients at the agency. So one of my clients at the agency, her husband had spent a few years working on the software for influencer marketing, and it just you know, it was all self-funded and it just never really panned out. Mm. But the tech was there. And, you know, he came to me one day and said, listen, you have an audience. You have an audience of agency owners. What if we kind of tweak this thing and turn it into something for agencies? Mm. And that's how my first software company, Agency Flow, started. And, you know... There's very big companies out there. I don't know if you're familiar with ClickFunnels. 
So I think they went from zero to a billion dollar valuation in five years, mm. which is good, but it's more impressive that it's all self-funded. So no investors. Mm. And the reason they did that was because they had, they got paid to get a customer. So most businesses go two, $300 in the hole, you know, Infusionsoft, HubSpot, these companies have to advertise and they only get their money four or five months later. You know, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I even had clients like that at the agency because they're just trying to, they have a bunch of investors, a bunch of money, and they're trying to ratchet up as many users as possible mm-hmm. to then sell. What ClickFunnels did is, you know, they advertised and got people, doesn't matter who it was, a funnel is the thing for them. You have to create a funnel for your business. Mm. And that was the messaging. So they get people in and, you know, let's say it's even a $12 book. Someone buys a $12 book. They spend $12 to acquire that customer. And they've done that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times. But now they have a paying customer who then uses Mm. the software. That's exactly what I did. I had my e-learning business and you get paid on the front end because Agency is the model that worked for me. And on the back end, what solution are they going to use? It was agency flow. And, you know, that's evolved over the last couple of years. You know, I realized at a certain point, there's only really one business model I would comfortably feel, I would feel comfortable speaking about in terms of starting as a beginner. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's many other businesses that I have. For example, you know, I give to you my eyewear. You know, e-commerce, when you're actually building a brand, is savage. It's a very difficult business. Mm. You know, even we're 11 months into this year, and I haven't taken out a single penny of profit from that company. Because every time you make money from that company, you then go back to the manufacturer and go, all right, slash the price 8%, slash the price 3%, 15%, you know, whatever you can get away with, you know, depending on your uh, order size. So... Going back to the e-learning company, we rebranded from Gurry Agency to Educate. And I'm very passionate about education. I just can't educate everyone because there's only so many things I know. Uh, And that's where we've brought on different educators. Mm. So, you know, I love what Masterclass did. So it's very similar to Masterclass, but I think Masterclass is awesome, by the way. Uh, But for $240 a year, I don't know if, that's necessarily worth it to learn cooking. Maybe it is, but for the common person. Uh, so our model at Educate is, it's $125 a month. Mm. Uh, so far more expensive and the first year is paid up front because you have your own uh, concierge, you have your own student success concierge. Uh, but yeah, you have this basket of different business models taught by different educators. And we've got some other cool stuff. Uh, you know, for example, my tailor is has recorded a program, so we've, going back to not having a dad thing Mm. a lot of the things that I wish someone taught me about you know like I was shit scared the first time I went to Taylor I felt like I didn't belong there so we have all these hard skills and then all these soft skills and that's all under this package of educate which is great but that model isn't going to make you a billionaire the I guess more genius aspect behind it is you've got all of these business models and all of these online career paths 
as you know, with pretty much every single business or every single career path, you're going to need software. So the software that people use, because I try to build the best solutions for people, are businesses that I own, I have a large equity stake in, or if I don't, and I don't feel like buying a solution or creating a solution, then it's businesses that I have 50-50 partnerships with. Mm. So anyone who uses that software, and bear in mind, it doesn't, you know, we only recommend the best softwares. You know, if you're starting an e-commerce business, you need Shopify. So if we're going to bring Shopify all these customers, I'm going to be honest, yeah, we should be compensated for it. Mm. So that is... Yeah, that's How that, you made the money. <laughs> that's, that's the engine. And that's one of the businesses. Okay. Um, why do you have a security guard? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you have security for one of three reasons because you've pissed someone off and you know you need to stay safe which luckily <laughs> uh, you know I don't fall under that bracket mm. you have valuables on you mm. you know expensive watch expensive jewelry this that whatever it may be and you're worried someone is going to take that from you. Once again, I also don't fall under that bracket. You know, I happen to, you know, I've been a big horology fan for many, many, many years. So, you know, I have a pretty well-known multi-multi-million dollar watch collection. But if I had to give that up to not have security, I would take that any day. Mm. Having security is not a fun thing, I'll be honest. Then the last bracket is if you're very well known. Mm. And I think very well known also falls under multiple different categories. Because, listen, if you are a football player, and let's say you have 20 million followers, or you're a musical artist and you have 20 million followers, the musical artist has 10 times more raving fan than the footballer. Mm. Because at the end of the day, the footballer you know, I'm sure they've definitely impacted lives, but nowhere near to the same degree as a musical artist. You know, it's in the same way a TV talk show host with a certain amount of audience is going to have far more raving fans than someone who's just an actor. Because an actor is acting. You, you, you never feel that connected to them. It never... Seldom do they genuinely, truly change your life. For example, even with Mia, you know, there's certain musical artists. I listened to their album in a difficult period in my life or while I was going through something. Like that, they, you know, they changed my life in a certain way or they sort of uh, stamped a memory into a certain period of my life. So although I don't have the biggest audience, I mean, it's... It's definitely quite sizable. I think the big difference with me is, you know, when you have millions and millions of subscribers and followers and this and that, of people whose lives you've changed, Mm. that's a very different thing than just, you know, having the millions of subscribers, but you're just a, you do whatever. So I'm at a place where, you know, I'll be honest, my head of security lives with me. 
uh, I'd say probably five times a day someone tries to come to my house. Uh, obviously, I live in a gated community. I have 24-hour security in front of my house as well. But I've had crazy stuff. I've had people try to swim to get to my house. Uh, I've had people rent villas. But why? Like, why the obsession? I mean, even footballers, like you said, don't... Unless you're a very, very popular footballer. A because very pop. Respectfully, you're a footballer. You haven't really changed anyone's life. But what do they gain if they swim and come to your house? Okay. A lot of times they just want to say thank you. Hmm. That's not a normal thank you, though. That's an Olympic thank you. I understand. But once again, as I said, if you spoke to most musical artists out there, they would probably tell you a lot of the hmm. same sort of thing. And bear in mind also that is a musical artist that maybe isn't fully transparent. You don't know all the details of their life. Like my life was, is all there on YouTube to see. Mm. Every trial, tribulation, everything. So those people who have been watching me for six years, who a lot of times just want to thank me. Mm. And, you know, I am under the philosophy, I genuinely believe this, I don't care where I am. Like I could be running, genuinely, I, you know, I run and people, you know, honk their horn and, you know, stop and try to get, I will stop my run. I don't care if I'm at lunch. I don't care if I'm shopping. I don't care where it is. I will always stop and take a photo. And more importantly, I'll ask their name and at least try to, you know, uh, get to know them a little bit because they've given their most valuable thing to me, their time. They've given me their time and their attention. Mm. The two places that I will not tolerate is my house and a place of worship. To me, those are the two places I feel like I should just get to be Iman and not this image of Iman or whoever you think I am. Mm. I feel like it should get to be me in my most calm, peaceful state. So, you know, to answer your question of, you know, why security? It's not because I'm in any harm and any risk and this or that. It's more so so I can have the best interactions with the people that follow my stuff and support me because I'll be honest, sometimes I said if I'm running, someone tries to talk to me for five minutes or three minutes and, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of a run. You know, I'll be more than happy to stop and talk to you and, and this and that. But when it comes to now, you know, you're asking me questions for five minutes, like I do kind of just want to get back to my run. Mm. And security is very good, or the security that I have is very good uh, because, you know, my head of security, he blends in. He looks like a normal person. Mm. And he'll just respectfully say, uh, you know, Iman wants to get back to his run. Uh, you know, I hope you don't mind this. That's just so that way I don't have to. Be the person who says no. Yeah, and you know, as I said, even things like he keeps him and my other security, they keep their eyes peeled. And that's in a place like Dubai. Now, once we start talking about a place like Cape Town, which I had a house you know, for many years, a place like London, these places are genuinely dangerous places. Mm -hmm. And whether you have a watch on or not, they think you have a watch on. So more so in those places, um, that's where security, I think, is 
It's like an insurance policy. You know, you don't need yeah. it until you need it. And when you need it, you hope you, it's there. And you regret not having you something. regret and you ask yourself why you were so stupid to because mm. the I'm telling you right now, especially in places like London, I don't think as a man you can live with yourself if someone was to ever come into your house and your wife and your family sees you in that state and your wife and your family sees you because this happens a lot especially if you're well known a lot of break-ins mm-hmm. and by the way not even if you're mega mega famous if you're moderately well known on social media you know you you are a target at the mm-hmm. end of the day and the idea that you know the world's a crazy place the idea that that can happen or we take it to an even smaller perspective I don't like the thought that my mom can be in London and someone's having a terrible day and whatever let's say my mom was walking across a zebra crossing another person decides not to stop and now someone else is flipping my mom off and cursing at my mom this is just for me personally I've worked too hard in my life to make sure that my mom has to deal with any unnecessary disrespect and Dubai is an extremely extremely respectful place I love that about this place Unfortunately, the rest of the world doesn't share that same attitude. So, you go to places like London, you go to places like New York. And I guess as I said, for me I've worked too hard to let stuff like that happen when it doesn't need to. Let's switch, Mr. Iman. You're good? We switch to love. <laughs> Yalla. Okay. Do you believe that opposite genders can be friends? Hmm. I think yes they can but in very rare situations. Hmm. And I think usually the girls can be friends but the guys can't. Hmm. So it's actually us guys. We're the idiots. <laughs> um, so I think in a situation where you guys are childhood friends, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, familiarity kills attraction. Mm. So if you're familiar with a person for two decades, you've seen them, you know, through their acne phase and this and that, a lot of times that, that kills attraction. Mm. So I think family, friends, that's an example. Actually, yeah, that might be one of the only examples. Family, friends, like just really old friends where it's you guys have been friends for so long mm. that it's just nothing there. I think that girls can most of the time be friends with guys. Uh, I don't think that guys can necessarily be friends with girls. Mm. Or the other case, and there are some rare instances, there are some guys that if I'm just... speaking plainly have so many options you know you should never be i think a lot of girls worry that you know uh, maybe it's a playboy who's going to do something creepy 
or the guy who has lots of options that's going to do something creepy. No, it's the guy who has no options. He is the person that will do something creepy. Mm. So there's a lot of guys that I know that are just, they're fine in that department. They have a lot of options. So they don't need to, if there's a good, if there's a good friendship there, and I also, I think that's also another important thing is there needs to be a genuine friendship and there needs to be a give and take. I think that's also one of the reasons why for a lot of times for guys and girls, they can't be friends because a guy takes on a lot of risk being friends with a girl. Like for me, with my female friends, at the end of the day, I'm responsible for them. If we're out at dinner, if we're on a night out, I am responsible. I'm responsible to make sure they get home safe. I'm responsible that nothing happens to them. And, you know, that's a big responsibility for, in a guy's mind, nothing in return. Guys might look at that and I'm, okay, I'm doing all this, but, you know, you're almost giving girlfriend, she's all, you know, the benefits of a girlfriend, but, you know, you got none of the upsides of having a girlfriend, you know, which is that romantic as, the, a romantic aspect. Yeah. So I think as well, when it comes to guy-girl friendships, I think it's very important that the girl asks herself, you know, why would he be friends with me? Because I don't, and I think this fits into people in general. I don't think this belief, and I see this a lot these days in age, this day and age of, oh, my presence. Just me being here is the blessing. Just my mere presence is, is the gift. So I think, uh, you know, with a good guy, girl, female friendship, I think the girl does need to bring something to the table in whatever way that she can. You know, whether that is genuinely giving very good female advice, whether that's, you know, my, my female friends are always trying to do things for me in terms of like help out in any way they can. If they know I have this project, even though you know, I have tons of employees and people that work for me, they're like, oh, is there any way I could help? Yeah. You know, if it's, uh, let's say for one of my brands, there's a shoot, oh, can I come early and I'll get coffees for your team and help out and because they know that I've done so much for them in the flip side. So it's just a, a give and take. So I think that's really what makes a, is, is very important yeah. uh, to a good guy-girl friendship is that there's a give and take. And I think not every guy has the same worldview and the same perspective. You know, most guys, they think, oh, if I'm out with my female friend, it's not my fucking responsibility to make sure they get home safe. It's not my responsibility to make sure that they're okay. So yeah, maybe if we're talking those kind of guys, then yeah, who cares? Just maybe your presence is enough. But if a guy is going out of his way to make sure that you are safe, you're protected, you're this and that, and from a masculine perspective, he's doing everything that he can, then you need to find a way to reciprocate that in some form or fashion. Mm. So I had a guest who some, said something interesting. He said, as long as there's a physical attraction by either side, it's never going to be a pure friendship. And I thought that was a really good filter. Because I've asked this question. Mm-hmm. I'm always curious about the answer. Because it's like a dilemma, you know? Some people are like, yeah, they're like my sister, my brother. And, and you're like, can it actually work? And then you realize, I thought that was the best filter. If there is a physical attraction by either side, it's never pure. I agree with that. And I always, because you know, the, you said it right, right, you said, females are more capable of doing it as the guys that have a hard time. And the issue is, 
Because females are wearing the goggles of friendship, they're thinking or assuming the guy is wearing the same goggles. Mm. The guy, let's say nine out of 10, are thinking, I just hope she gets tipsy. I just hope she breaks up. I just hope she's vulnerable. I hope she's grieving. And I will take that opportunity and pray that she actually is attracted to me finally, right? And that's where women are really disappointed or shocked. I can't believe Mm. you tried to touch my hand or kiss me or whatever. But he's been deceiving you all along with that cloak, you know, he's under the friendship cloak. So I always, when I'm talking to a female friend and she's like, no, this guy's my friend, this guy's my friend, this guy's my buddy. He will never. I'm like, okay, let's play this game because you girls are more, they're smarter than us. You're more aware. I'm like, okay, if you're sitting next to him and you just lean in for a kiss in a random park, let's say one day you're in a park and it's, thing and you're talking and then you just lean in as if you're going to kiss would he kiss you back or not and if she pauses you know she knows Mm. you see what i mean but if she goes no ew he would never then i would be more rest assured that maybe he's really just a brother but if she has to think about it or hand forget the kiss you just put your hand on the guy would he hold your hand back romantically I'm just doing it PG-13 now, but you know, <laughs> I think that's a good filter. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think most women know what the answer is. They do, but they don't want to know. They don't want to know because it's convenient. And it's not, I understand, Iman. It sucks if you see somebody as a friend and they don't see you as a friend. Because let's say they're cool and fun and interesting and they help you, like you said, with the project. Like it's... You want that friend. You mm. don't want to believe that there's more to it. Mm. So I understand their point of view too. But the reality is completely different. He's just waiting. He's waiting for that chance. And the thing is, guys will wait a long time. Yeah, especially, sorry for the word, the loser guys. Correct. Because I, the same guy who said that, I, what I told you, the physical attraction filter, he said something, I have the clip and I should translate it for you. In, an, in a way, he's like any person, even a girl with you, who acts like your friend is a form of a deceit. It's deceit. I'm not true to you. Mm-hmm. I have an agenda. I'm, she's just waiting for Iman to one day like her or break up or whatever. So it's not real, not genuine, you know? And I don't, and that's what I said, why I said loser guys, because I would respect the guy who says, listen, We've been friends for three years. I started to have feelings for you. I think you're the greatest woman for me. Mm. And if you don't, if you can't see me that way, I respectfully withdraw because this is not good for my heart. Mm. I swear, respect. But don't sit there asking, is everything okay with your boyfriend? Not, don't do that shit, you mm. know? That's what I don't like. Correct, and then women, yeah, I think things maybe have changed a little bit recently but then women think you're controlling (laughs) if you question okay Mm. you guys started becoming friends two years ago how did you Mm. become it's like how did you meet are you really friends why is he your friend Mm. so it's a funny dynamic it's very interesting but we'll come to you now more from general to you have you been in love Mm -hmm. i have how do you behave when you're in love because you're a pragmatic guy and a logical guy and a practical guy. So I'm assuming. Depends what kind of love are you talking about? 
You help me. Well, I think there's what people think love is, which is the first anywhere from six months all the way to two years. But that's not love. Mm. That's being high on a drug. And, you know, if every time you've been to Amsterdam from the second you touch down, you're high to the moment you leave and you talk about how much you love Amsterdam, you don't love Amsterdam. You just like being high. (laughs) And I think that's what love is for a lot of people. Mm. They bounce around from one year, two year relationship, bounce, 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 keep looking for that high. For me, as you said, I am very pragmatic. (laughs) So I don't trust that. Like I don't, I look at it for what it is, which is, hey, this is a beautiful period where, yeah, you love everything about this person. But I also know that I don't think I can call that true love until you get far into it. Hmm. And I think there's, you know, true love is when you wake up, you know, after 15 years, And I said this once and people found it depressing, but I think this is the most beautiful thing ever. You wake up 15 years in the morning, you look at your person next to you and you're not particularly attracted to them. The attraction's gone, but you would never, ever consider leaving this person. To me, that's true love. When you look at the person you're next to and you're like, whatever happens, we are in this shit for life. That is the most beautiful feeling and the most liberating feeling anyone could ever have. I think that's true peace. I'll help you since we're both going to be morbid. (laughs) You know when I really like love is when I go, especially in Europe, Mm. not America, because they don't dress as nice as uh, Europe. And I see these really old couple so well dressed Mm. and holding hands. I love that because that's where what you kind of just said. The looks are gone, the spontaneity and all of this crazy, you know, attraction is gone and the chemistry, but there is and it gentle love, maybe. Sorry to interrupt you. That also doesn't mean that there aren't moments of that. You know, just because, you know, 75% of the year you don't get that feeling doesn't mean that there isn't those other times where you wake up after 22 years and you wake up and you look at your partner and she looks like a literal angel. She looks like she's glowing. And you're like, fuck, this is the mother of my children. Mm. Like we created a life. We create, we created a life together and we created life together. And, you know, I don't think that ever goes. Mm. I think the, Every single day you look at the person you're with and you want to rip off their clothes. I think that lust goes. And I think good. I think good riddance to it. Mm. Because in life, when things are good and easy, if you enjoy something or you love something, that doesn't mean that you truly love it. You know, if you only like your business when it's easy, or if you only like being a parent when it's easy, that doesn't mean you love parenting. You know, really truly loving something in life is you're there and you show up when it sucks and it takes work and it takes effort. Mm. 
And we've all had that feeling, whatever it is in life, where we're like, you know what, fuck this, I don't need this. And if you have that thought and you snap yourself out of it in the next second, you're like, what am I saying here? This is, I can't give up on this. Yeah, yeah I don't know. To me, it's like, this, that's just the most beautiful thing ever. My mother always used to tell us boys, she goes, um, looks are the first things you get used to. Mm-hmm. Habits, values, those are what stay. You're with a gorgeous guy or you're with a gorgeous girl. Okay, what if foul-mouthed, bad values, she treats your mom like crap. Mm-hmm. What are you doing, Iman? Like, really? You want all of this? No, although she's a miss God knows what. Mm. What's, there's, what's there's the point? M- there's many of those. And one of the most beautiful necklaces I have, uh, I have it in Arabic, it says, speak so I can see. Mm. So Iman, I can meet you and be like, ah, if I care about materialistic thing, I can be like so impressed, right? But if I don't, if I don't give a shit about all of this, I'm like, speak so I can see you. Mm. Speak Iman, because then I know you. Mm. Do I like you? Do I like this? Do I like how you speak? Are you rude? Are you arrogant? Are you modest? Are you wise? And that for me, I learned with life, it doesn't matter how good looking you are, my darling. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. Then I know more. Sorry, you were going to say something. No, you're 100% correct. And I guess, you know, maybe people won't like this analogy, but as you brought up the car thing, I've also noticed that in life, you know, a lot of guys as they're in their early stages, they want the Ferrari and then they get the Ferrari and then they realize after some time, it sucks. There's nothing good about this. I mean, of course, it's exciting at times and this and that, but you know, then they get further on in life and they get a little wiser and all they want is just a good car that they can rely on and they feel comfortable and safe inside. Mm. And you know, that's really all to say, just going back to the beauty thing, it's been my personal observation that the most respectable men that I've met, a lot of times they don't have the miss something something. Mm. A lot of times they don't have this mega superstar, supermodel, this, that. A lot of times, you know, they're still a very beautiful, you know, elegant, classy woman. But it's, it's not the looks that's impressive. You know, it's the way that they carry themselves. Mm. And the way that they know, okay, this is how we protect our kingdom. Okay, so you've been in love. And you went a bit gener- generic because you said you're pragmatic and you, pr- you like the phase that comes after the year mm-hmm. or two. Now, we zoom out again. So not Iman. Why do you think so many people cheat? Well, it's different. It's different for whether a man cheats or a woman cheats. So... If a man cheats, I believe it's because he's giving into his carnal desires and because he's misguided, you know, I'll be very honest and frank, you know, that's something I've done in the past when I was younger. And that's because I guess I grew up in an environment where it's very clear love is not a thing. Love is not something that lasts. Love is also something to run away from. I think sometimes, I think definitely, especially, you know, for me, it was a way to run away from something that was so pure. 
you know, when I was younger, I must have been 18 or 19 at the time. You know, when I cheated, it was, I had such a good thing and I was so scared. <laughs> and that was my way of like self-sabotage. Mm. So I think as a man, it's either you can't control yourself and you're giving into your carnal desires or it's a form of self-sabotage. I think as a woman, and I know this, I, I genuinely know this is gonna sound crazy to some people, or at least this was my experience. You can, as a man, you can cheat and never once think badly of your partner. You can cheat and never once, like it never comes as crazy as it sounds from a disrespectful place. You just, as I said, maybe you're so scared or you're running away or you're trying to self-sabotage. Whereas I find that when a woman cheats, it's pretty much always from a disrespectful place. And it, I mean that in the sense of she doesn't respect her partner anymore. Mm. And I'm also a person who is under the impression that everything is a man's fault. You know, I know I have some very crazy opinions on things, but when I hear that, you know, a woman has cheated on a man, I always blame the man. Maybe that's just my character. I always like to take responsibility for everything. And I think, you know, men should be responsible for everything and this and that. But I think I've never seen it where a woman truly, genuinely from the bottom of her heart respects her man and is in admiration of her man and cheats. But do you think, I want to use your, your point. Do you think a woman who has bad experience and love from previous, meets a really good guy, mm -hmm. actually falls in love, but love, but that's so too good to be true and she believes internally she doesn't deserve that love. God knows why, because mm -hmm. of her childhood or whatnot. And then she does the self-sabotage. Okay, so to give a little bit more nuance, what I always say is that 80% of the time, it's a woman stops respecting a man, respecting a man. And 20% of the time, it's trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's her character. And I still always blame men for that. Because I think as a man, you should be competent enough to see your partner and understand, see the chinks in the armor and understand that we all have a life story. As I said, I had the literal worst example of what love is and all I was taught from a young age is run away from love, run away from love, run away from love. And that is absolutely no excuse to ever cheat but it's, you know, it's part of your story and it's flaws that, you know, it takes time to work on and eventually you work through. So I do agree with that. I think that some women have experienced such horrendous things that no matter how good something is, they'll sabotage it. Mm. And I think a lot of times they are addicted to emotions. I think people are addicted to emotions. You do have to ask yourself when a woman has been with four abusive partners, how does that keep happening again and again? Because mm -hmm. of course there is abuse out there, but majority of men aren't like that. Majority of men aren't physically abusive. 
So how after four partners do you keep finding the same thing again and again? It's because you're addicted to that emotion. So you're correct in saying that. But as I said, I always like to think that as a man, you should be able to see these signs. Are you putting too much load on us, guys? I don't know. Um, if you cheated mm-hmm. and your partner is never to find out, would you tell her or not? I think in life, and I can speak from experience here, I think in life everything that's done in the shadows comes to light. And I've never seen it once in life where you do something and you do a wrong and you sin and it comes back to the pendulum swings the other way and you face the repercussions. Now the repercussions might be instantaneous. The repercussions might be in a month. The repercussions might be in 37 years. But I'll come back. So is that a yes or no? Yeah, you tell him. You would tell him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now another or maybe the last love question. Um, why do you think so many marriages fail in, a, in this modern age? I think it goes back to everything I was saying, which is people watch these movies and everything is light and fairy and perfect and magical and every single date should be this beautiful idyllic thing and everything should be, should feel like a movie. And I think that's probably the most cancerous thought you can have about love. I think love at times can feel like war. I think love at times can feel like a battle. But if you know why you're fighting it, that's the beauty of it. So I think if I think if we changed our perception around love from this thing of its commitment, we make this thing work. Now bear in mind, there is a percentage of people that You try to make it work. If you try to make it work for many years and from the bottom of your heart, you both can truly rest easy at night and go, we just couldn't. Then, of course, don't stay in something that isn't happy. Mm. But I don't think most people are like that. I think most people, it gets a little uncomfortable. And it gets a little uncomfortable and they go watch the latest movie that's out. And, oh, it's beautiful and romantic and the love never dies. Passion never dies. Passion never goes away, which is the biggest load of bullshit ever. Passion goes away no matter what you do in life. It has been my... Listen, there's things people say for TV and there's things people say because they want to be a good face and keep a good brand. But passion goes away. What is always there is, you know, at least in work, is mastery and in In your love life, in your marriage, I think you need to want to have mastery in marriage Mm. and mastery in union. So they go and watch these movies. And then the worst part is, 
and that's why it gets very dangerous, especially with a lot of women, they have their divorced friends. And their divorced friends, as horrible as it sounds, want someone to join the pity party with them. So things get a little rocky, and they've got their friend in the air saying, why do you need him, you know? And, and listen, of course, it goes vice versa, you know, a lot of guys, but in today's day and age, women do uh, initiate majority of the marriages, uh, sorry, uh, uh, initiate divorces. majority of the divorces. So as I said, it gets dangerous because then they've got that friend in their ear that wants them to join the pity party and doesn't say, hey, work through it. You love this person. Tell me why you love this person. Tell me what initially drew you to this person. Sit down with me right now. I've had these conversations with my friends that are in their 30s and 40s. I say, sit down with me right now. Tell me 10 things you love about this person. And by the end of it, they're like, fuck, yeah, you're right. Perspective. Yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah, you're right. What was I thinking? Blah, blah, blah. Now imagine if they went to the other friend and they were like, nah, you don't need her. Why do you need her? You know, it's not like you guys have dedicated seven years of your life together and she gave you her best years and now you're going to sit around, you know, turn around like a jackass and just throw that in her face. So that's why I think the friends are very, very important. And I think when you're in a marriage, you have to be very careful. This goes for both sides. You have to be very careful who is my partner friends with, who is my husband friends with, who is my wife friends with. Because a lot of times those friends will be the people that truly end the marriage. It won't be the marriage itself. There's a nice uh, hadith by the Prophet uh, Muhammad. He says, uh, The person is on his best friend's religion. Mm. So whatever that religion is. <laughs> so when you, you know, they say, there's another saying, uh, show me your friends, I'll show you who you are, something like that. Mm -hmm. There's a saying that, you know, if I want to really know Iman, show me the five closest people to you. Mm -hmm. Then I'll get a good idea, mm -hmm. you know. So if they're all cheaters and you're like, no, but I'm the loyal one. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Sooner Correct. or later, it will influence you, you know? Oh, they're all smart. You're like, ah, oh, he's a smart person. He's a deep person. He reads. And um, just on that point, I, tell me. you know, that's even why I believe it's pastors. They never travel in twos. They always travel in threes. Because if one person wants to sin and convince the other to sin, then uh, at least there's a third one to step in and knock some sense into them. Interesting. Do you think you'll be a good father? I do, yes. Yeah, I do. Why? I think when it comes to being a dad, it's about going out in the world and learning a lot and instilling that wisdom in your children. You know, before we went on the, you know, we started recording. You said, uh, you know, do you, do you do a lot of podcasts? And I told you, no, I don't. Uh, you know, I took a break for a year and I, I think after this, I intend on taking another break for a long time. And the reason why is because I need to go and I need to learn and I need to bring that back to my audience. And the same way I, I believe as a father, you need to go and you need to go do difficult things and you need to go experience the world and you need to bring that back to your children. And I think that's something that I'm definitely very good at. Mm. So I think I'm very aware, self-aware of the type of father that I want to be and the type of mother that I want my wife to be. And I think that when you've got a team that both understands what position they want to play, 
That's the strongest union you could ever have. Magic. Um, what's your problem with the educational system? <laughs> I think my problem is with its origins. That it was literally created to spit out mindless, obedient factory workers. And if you actually, if you actually look at the history books, that was quite literally the purpose of it. You know, the Prussian education system. I'm sure you've come to realize in your life as well that a lot of times the smartest kids in school don't go on to be the smartest or the most successful people in life. Because in life, the most important thing is critical thinking. Is without someone telling me how to think, how do I come to my own conclusions? Because mm. at the end of the day, if you, the only way you know how to think is in the confines of a box that someone set for you, then you don't know how to think. So, you know, it's funny I say all this stuff because I am, I guess, a walking juxtaposition because on the one hand, I dropped out of school. On the one hand, I have this uh, e-learning platform where I bring on the best educators in the world and you know, I try to give people the best online education possible. And then on the other hand, I've been building schools in Nepal for four years. So I have, you know, I've built a schools, physical schools for thousands and thousands of children. So I believe in education. I just believe in you have to have the right education for your opportunities and where you are in life. Mm. I don't think one of the children at one of my schools in Nepal should go and start a... Uh, this business or that business or whatever, like if they have a, a good education in that part of the world, if you have a good education, you will do well, full stop. If you live in the US or Europe or wherever it may be, a good education does not equate to a more successful career. And I think 40 years ago, everyone should have gone to college because there was a very clear-cut correlation between the more educated you are in college, the more you make. These days, that's not the case whatsoever. And the issue is people don't understand. I guess I have less problem with school. I've had more and more of a problem with it cool. in the last five or so years with what they're teaching, because it genuinely is crazy what they're ch uh, teaching children in school. You know, I'm grateful I'm not a parent right now because I, you know, I have friends of mine whose children go to school and it's, it's actually shocking what they teach them. You know, that you can be a, a plant or you can be a, uh, this tomorrow you can wake up and be a light bulb and, you know, you can choose to be whatever you want. Uh, yeah, it's, to me, it's genuinely disgusting to try to implant that in a six-year-old's mind. If you want to have that conversation at 18, so be it. If you want to have the conversation at 18 that you can be whatever you want to be, beautiful, have that conversation. 
when someone's fully developed their mind at seven, that is genuinely disgusting and I believe should be criminal. So uh, I guess, as I said, over the last few years, I've grown more and more disgusted by the by school. But universities I've always been, universities and colleges I've always never been a fan of because it's the student loans that make it so expensive. I'll give you an example. I like to think that I am a very ethical and moral business person and you know, I have a long track record to prove that I, I am. But I'm going to be very honest with you. If tomorrow the government comes out and says, anyone who wants to invest in online education, we will give a 100% loan to anyone. I'm going to raise my prices. Everyone in the online education space is going to raise their prices. If the government came out and said, we will give a loan to anyone, doesn't matter who it is, to take tennis classes, I guarantee you, Within three years, tennis classes will cost 10 times as much as they currently do. And that's what has happened with college. Mm. Because anyone can get approved for a student loan, the universities aren't dumb. They go, okay, all right. The government's paying for it. So let's ratchet up the prices. So I think that is genuinely my big gripe with colleges is, and it's not just colleges, it's any business in general that increases prices without trying to add extra value. Mm. And in fact, they keep increasing prices of prices, but the results that Mm. their students get keep declining and declining. Same with medical insurance. Why is today an x-ray so expensive? Because it's based on insurance, not based on your pocket or his pocket. Mm -hmm. So go up. Correct. It's a dirty way of doing work. I mean, and listen, it's the same thing, same philosophy applies with housing bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden a cleaner can get a, you know, no money down, three mortgages. And you're going to sit there and you're asking, you know, respectfully, you know, you have a, quite a low income. <laughs> How do you have, you know, two beachfront properties? And, you know, that's because at a certain point, willy-nilly, they're giving out no money down loans to anyone because they're incentivized. So I don't think it's specifically that industry that is, it's very obvious to see why it's happened. But the issue is, as I said, everyone can get a student loan. You know, even in the midst of the 2008 crisis, you're still gonna need to put some work in to convince uh, you know, banks to give you a, a loan and give mm-hmm. you a mortgage. There's still like some friction and some, you know, still a lot, being pe- a lot of people being turned away. But when everyone can get a student loan, and that's the other thing, in what world do you live in where an 18-year-old will go to a bank and go, give me 50 grand, give me 100 grand, give me 300 grand, and I have no plan on how I'm going to make that money back. But you can go and get a, 150 grand loan, student loan, to start, study a liberal, a liberal arts degree. What are you going to do with the future? I don't know. I'm just in university. I'm just, I'll figure it out later. 
What's your What's your issue with social media? I have many. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. Obviously, I have you know a relatively large social media following, but I tell people on my YouTube videos. I tell people all the time. Listen, the best thing you can do is delete YouTube. I tell people all the time. What you are doing right now, my videos are very informative. My videos are me trying to relay what I've learned over the last decade. But I tell my audience, when you watch me, or when you watch this podcast, for example, this is entertainment. Now, you, a bonus is you might learn something, but don't go into it thinking this is education or this is my study time, or I'm really doing something productive here. So I'd say that my issue with social media is people's. You've got the people who are scrolling TikTok mindlessly, and of course, I think obviously they know that they're wasting their life. I don't think there's any part of them that doesn't know that they're wasting their life. But I think probably the even more dangerous side is the people who are the podcast. Yeah, I don't even want to say you the word. You can word. say it. Or, I won't get the, offended. They're the podcast whores, you know, yeah. who watch. Podcast and podcast and think, oh, you know, I'm doing so much with my life.、Mm. You're not doing anything. That's entertainment. You might learn something, but don't think that that's a substitution for going and doing something with your life.、Mm-hmm. So, if, as long as people have a healthy relationship with social media and what they're consuming, and they're really auditing what they're consuming, because social media can make you believe some funny things. You could be. The happiest person ever. You could have a life that you dreamed of, and you go on social media, and you see one person. And I, th- I really want people, even when they look at my stuff, I, I've, I've tried to say this many times. When you're looking at my stuff, go ask yourself: When you see me dress a certain way, and you're like, you, maybe I should start dressing like that. Is that true to you? Because maybe you like to dress flamboyantly. I don't really wear colors that much. Maybe that's true to you. When you see. Me and my decisions to move to Dubai. Don't think you need to move to Dubai. As long as you can look at social media and you have a, a you know a strong mindset, which a lot of people don't. As long as you can look at social media and not get swayed, because even as strong as I am, I sometimes I'm even on social media and I look at, you know, one person who started this business and I'm like, oh, you know what? Maybe I should. It wouldn't be that much work. Maybe I just like. I'll call my team, and then you know we'll spin off the company, and then do and and then you get to him, and you're like, this thought isn't even mine. Or you know you might see a location, and you're like, you know maybe I should move there. And then eventually you look at it, and you're like, this isn't my thought. This is just this has come from one small little thing, and then it's spiraled into this massive thing.、Mm. So my biggest issue with social media is its ability to. Veer people off a track that was a good track. You could be doing everything right with your life, everything right. You're going at the right pace in the right direction, and you see some other dickhead, and now all of a sudden you think that, oh, you're not you're not moving fast enough, or you're not doing enough, or you're not doing this, or you're not doing that. You know, it's crazy. A hundred years ago, fifty years ago, thirty years ago, you could be doing so well in life. You know, you could be, let's say, you're 26, and you're making 400 grand a year. 
you know, back then, let's say whatever, 250, 200 grand a year. And, you know, you have a beautiful wife and you have your first new, uh, newborn and you have a good life. And, and in your mind, 30 years ago, you are a king. Like you are successful. You've done everything right. This, now, if you're 26 and you have a beautiful wife and a beautiful child and you make 400 grand a year, which by the way is a very respectable amount of money, you're going to look online and you're going to go, oh, fuck, I'm not a multimillionaire, this, that, I'm a failure, I'm a blah, blah. It's like, this is why I try to come on these platforms and even my own platform and I try to tell people, this is my life that I have chosen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's the best life. It doesn't mean it's the life that's right for you. So figure out what is right for you based on your season of life. So I would say that's my biggest issue with social media <laughs> is it will just steer you in wrong directions when you could be on the right path. Mm. If you could teach children one lesson only, what lesson would you teach them? How to truly sit and listen to someone's story. Because hmm. I think that when you listen to someone's story and you realize how they got to, you may hate a destination, but if you realize that, hey, this person got given a map and they got given the wrong coordinates and they were meant to go this way and maybe they went the wrong way and this and, that, and all of a sudden they end up at this horrible place. You're just thinking, how could that person end up at that destination? But when you don't realize that they've been given a wrong map, one breeds hatred and contempt and thinking that you're better than someone. And the other one breeds understanding and going, hey, I'm, I might not agree where you ended. I may not agree the destination you got to, but I can understand why you got there. And just because I don't agree with it doesn't mean that you're a bad person mm-hmm. for landing there. And I think the only way that that happens is by having conversations and truly hearing someone's story. I think, you know, if you, before any b- debates in life, if the prerequisite to a debate is you need to spend 30 minutes, let's say, in this format and you need to talk to someone and ask someone the exact same questions that you asked me because... I'm sure you know this. I'm sure many people tell you this, but you ask brilliant questions. You ask questions that really shine a light on a person's character. And, you know, I just want to also say, pay my respects to you for that. Because, you know, you don't need to do the level of research that you do into a guest. I've never, ever, ever had someone reference my mom's name. You know, I've never had someone ask me the questions that you've asked me. But there might be people who came into this podcast and maybe, as you said, think I'm arrogant or maybe hate me. And maybe after watching this, they still may not agree with the way I live my life, but they can understand, okay, I understand how we got there. Mm. And I think if we could teach children the skill that you've been able to cultivate so well, I genuinely think the world would be a much better place. Thank you. Mm, I have another question for you. 
because you mentioned just now, how is your relationship with money? I see it two ways. I see it as a tool. As a tool to make more people's lives better. Mm. And by the way, I, I want to make something very clear that three years ago, if you asked me that and I gave you that answer, I'd be talking off my ass. And I think it's really important. I think that's one of the things I hate about social media is I can watch something and tell that this person's PR person re- rehearsed that with them and told them, say that, say that, make yourself look good. I think you have to get to a point in life where you, you are good yourself and then you get to a point where you are so abundant that you can really genuinely mean it when you say these things. Mm-hmm. So I look at money as a tool for doing better in the world. And I will be honest, I look at money as a benchmark. Mm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think if I, if you were interviewing me and I was a professional sprinter, or let's say I was a professional marathon runner, and I told you last year I ran in this time and this year I ran in this time and I was proud and I was excited about that, everyone would clap mm. and think, wow, well done, you should be proud of yourself. But if someone sits here and says, last year I made this much money and this year I made this much money, you're arrogant, you're a prick, how dare you, all this stuff. And I understand it's because most people think that the only way you get ahead in the world is by It's because of all these movie depictions that, you know, the boss or the person who owns the company, you know, kicks his feet up on the table and works while everyone else makes him rich. Mm. I'm sure, as you know, that's most certainly not the case. <laughs> it literally couldn't be farther from the truth. So for me, it is definitely a benchmark of how much impact, number one, am I making in the world? And also sometimes how much growth have I had as a person? Because I will be honest, sometimes you can make money and you haven't truly impacted the world. Mm. Sometimes you've just made some very smart investments. Sometimes you bought into the company at the right time. Sometimes you bought into an investment at the right time. Let's not sit here and pretend like you made the world a better place. Mm. But that's still a skill set. You still, you know, that you still have cultivated the skill of knowing how to make money, make more money. Mm. So I still think that's a barometer for your growth as a person. So yeah, to answer your question, I see it as a, a tool for better. You know, I've said this even before I had any money. I intend on dying with zero, nothing. I don't intend on giving my children anything because I know, I know just how depressing money can make your life and all the downsides that money comes with. And that's when you've made money yourself. Imagine if you have all those downsides and you've never even gone through the trials and tribulations to know that, oh, you know, at least I accomplished something to make this happen. Mm. So a tool for better and a barometer for who you've become as a person. If you had a dinner table mm-hmm. and you can add three people, 
dead or alive, and everybody understands each other. So if languages change, it's fine. Mm. Which three people would sit with you for dinner? First one would be Marcus Aurelius. Ooh, I'm impressed. I love Marcus Aurelius. That's I've, that's the first time I get that answer. Okay, yeah. you impressed me with the first one. Okay, <laughs> let's go to the other two. Yeah, I don't think the other two will be as impressive. <laughs> um, yeah, Marcus Aurelius. I'd say the second one would probably have to be. Hitler. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's, listen, I think in life you need to know good and evil and what makes those worlds, what makes good people good and what makes evil people evil. And also, as I said, I guarantee you, as horrible as that man was, I guarantee you if you sat him down here for five hours and you went into, like we were talking about earlier, we went into every part of his story, at the end you might still fucking hate him. But you will go, okay, I can see how he arrived at that destination, no matter how disgusting that destination is. Mm. And the third one I'd say is probably Cleopatra. <laughs> because women are such powerful creatures. Women are such powerful beings. Women are such powerful There, I think that a woman who's truly powerful can sway her man's decision. And I think that just like Cleopatra did, you know, she influenced the greatest men in the world. And even though they're meant to be the, the leaders and the kings and this and that behind the scenes, in a sense, she was the one calling the shots. Mm-hmm. So I would love to speak to a woman who's so well-versed in the art of power, power, who's so in touch with her feminine essence and how she uses that. Because, you know, as the masculine essence is, you know, we're going to do things, we're going to push, we're going we're gonna to enforce our will on the world. Whereas the feminine essence is, you know, we're going to, in a sense, manifest, mm. and we're gonna let go, and things will come. You know, things will come into existence. Mm. So uh, I think, as I said, I'd love to meet a woman who was just probably one of the best ever to do it. I have a question that I've never asked before. Okay, I just came up with it recently, and they wrote it like this. Okay, mm-hmm. oh shit, how did she write it? Yeah, to be good enough. All right. It's a cool one. Okay, but needs your needs your imagination. Okay. Let's see if it works. It's your my first trial. Okay. So imagine Iman, imagine you're on an island and you wake up stranded on an island. Okay? Suddenly you wake up, you're stranded on an island. Mm-hmm. What are the three emotions that you feel? There's no way about it. Fear. Fear. Let's remember what you answer, yeah? Fear. Fear. Energy. Mm. 
Fear, energy, and motivation. Fear, energy, motivation. Okay. Next, you're walking on this island and you find a box. What is it made of and how big is the box? What I would like it to be. How do you imagine it? Now when I said it, what did you imagine? The first thing I imagined was a treasure trove. Okay, so it's made of what? Utilities. No, the thing is made wooden. of wooden. Okay. Like those how, pirate boxes you see. Yeah. How big? Maybe yay big. Okay. And now, Iman, you open the box. Mm-hmm. What do you see inside? Utensils. Tools. Utensils. So utensils like this or like tools, tools? Cutting, net, you know, things, survival kit. Okay. After, everybody's focused because nobody knows this question. They're like, Ooh, what is this new one? Where is this going? Okay. After the treasure box and we opened it, you walk and you see a ladder. What is the ladder made of and how tall is it? Low, small, medium, large? It's small. Mm-hmm. It's a metal ladder. Metal ladder. And when you get on top of this ladder, is it shaky or stable? Stable. Stable. Okay. After the ladder, you're walking. And suddenly you see a tiger. Okay. What do you do? I freeze. Okay. That's it? I freeze and I wait. You wait for what? To see the tiger's reaction. And then what do you do? (laughs) It depends on the tiger's reaction. (laughs) Okay. Also, Uh, it depends on the tiger's reaction and how far away I am from the ladder. Okay, interesting. You walk, 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 Iman, and you see a river. What do you do? A river on this island, so it's uh, not salt, normal river. I look at how far the other side is. How far the other side, where where it goes? Where it takes Okay, where it takes me. Okay. Ready? Mm -hmm. Let's see if this is right. You're my lab rat, sorry. (laughs) So, the island and how do you feel? What did you say? Fear, energy, and? Motivation. Motivation. That is how you feel in this period in your life. Okay. Fearful, motivated, and energetic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, The treasure is made out of wood, which is sturdy, and that is your heart. Okay. Your heart is made out of a very stable material, right? How big the treasure is, is how big your heart is or how vulnerable you'd open it. It's not too big that you open it to the whole world and not too close of that is dead. Mm -hmm. So it's... A normal size, I would say. And then you said, what's inside? What's inside is what makes your heart, which is tools, <laughs> utensils, and how you are of service. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that came out, I think, accurate. That is how you show love. Mm-hmm. That is your heart. It's mm-hmm. net, utensils, tools, cutting. You help and fix and do all of that. And then you walked and you saw the ladder and the ladder, it's your network. It's a small network. So you have a small, close group of people in your life. You said it's made out of metal. So it's a very strong network Mm. of people. Small is how vast it is and you have a small one. And uh, the stability is the relationship status with those network, Mm. which is a strong one. 
a lot of people say shaky or and a shaky you're like oh, okay <laughs> then um, we went on to the tiger and that's how you face your problems you freeze and wait and see what to do according to that issue and then the river is how you feel about love in your life you want to see where it takes you mm. yeah should I come <laughs> not bad huh it's good You think you would do that with a romantic partner? I do it with everybody. Really? Yeah, I think it's, I have a few of those. I have another one called Cocology Cube Test. I can do that for you later. Uh, th- some of them are really interesting because they play on the subconscious. So mm. you're answering me, but you don't know what you're answering. Because mm. if I ask you, what do you feel about love? You're like this. How do you feel in your life? You're like, one, top, top. Yeah. And I usually use this test to verify what I heard earlier, mm. you know? Card game? Let's do the card game. This is a card game I'm going to give you one also. So okay. you can, with your mother, friends, but we'll just do one. Okay, so this is the, our card game, which we worked on for a while. We'll give you a copy. But let me just take a few. We'll play on fate with this one. Let's see your fate. <laughs> okay, we have enough here. All right. We'll put more. Mix. I'll take the first one. I feel like some people are so good at mixing. Some, very they, few actually. They got like cool, yeah. like little yeah, tricks. Yeah, they go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You can tell I've never played poker. Uh, this is a marriage one. So we go to the next one. This is really good. Your faith is interesting. I'll ask and then you throw the action. If you had the chance to be reborn, would you choose your life again? Throw this. Throw it. Throw it. Anyway. Be. Shu? Maktub Shu? Huh? I think one more. Mafia, one more. And one word. One word. If you had the chance to be reborn, would you choose your life again? Yes. Interesting. It's a good question sometimes. You know, mm. some people wouldn't. Mm. They wouldn't even want to be born in the same family. And mm. I've got those. And I respect their honesty, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Enough with the fun ones. Mm-hmm. Um, What is the question you don't want me to ask and what's your answer? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I like the challenge. I feel like you could ask anything. You feel you're that type of person? Anything? Mm-hmm. You take it. Yeah, I'd like to believe that. Is there a question you want me to ask you that I haven't asked? No, to be honest, as I said, this has been 
one of the most thorough, no, scratch that, the most thorough podcast I've ever done. At times, it felt like a podcast. At times, it felt like two friends talking over coffee. At times, it felt like a forensic investigation. <laughs> so I feel like you, you covered all angles. Okay, we have a few more. Happiest moment in your life so far? I can't think of a specific happiest moment because all of the, all of the times I thought I would be the happiest, you get to that moment and it, it's fleeting and it's never what you thought it was going to be. Mm. So I feel like my happiest moments are little times when you're walking in a park and you know that when you're walking in a park and you can hear the leaves Mm. swishing mm. in the wind mm. when that's when you're at that place in life for me i feel like you have true peace and presence and there have been times in my life like that it's definitely not common these days but i would say happy in the sense that most people consider it to be mm. is when i'm most at peace and most present what do you think is the biggest lie people tell themselves? I think the biggest lie people tell themselves is about what they want in life. I think, as I said, because we live in a world of so much noise, people have these dreams and these desires, but they're worried that they're going to be shunned for it, that they're going to be an outcast. And that could be, no, dad, I don't want to become a dentist. I want to do this with my life. Mm -hmm. It could be in that way, or on the flip side, it could be a complete opposite spe spectrum, which is like, no, I want to be 21 and get married and spend the rest of your, spend the rest of the, my, my life building a family with someone. And then this guy's friends are like, no, that's gay. You know, it can be on two different ends of the, the spectrum. So I'd say, The biggest lie is people not being honest as to what they want from life. Mm. And I always think that, you know, whenever you're, whenever something causes an emotional trigger in you, unpack that. Because when you really don't give a shit about something, you don't care. You just, you may not agree with it, but you just, Mm -hmm. you, you guys can live your life like that. I don't care. But when it causes, causes an emotional charge in you, then there's something 
there's probably something more there than than you want to admit to yourself. There's a saying: anything hysterical is historical. Hmm. So when you see yourself going hysterical or feeling too much about something, there's a history to it. Hmm. So whenever you see you do something and you get a very extreme response, and you're like, "Hey, why are you so upset? I just did, I just said that." Mm. But you know that's not what happened just now. There is a lot. Well said. Yeah. Um, what is something that somebody has told you that has hurt you and you've never forgotten? I guess the reason I'm struggling with this question is there's two sides to it. There's the hurt and then there's the forgotten. There's been things that people have said that have hurt me. Maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I think when you say forgotten, the way I interpret that is that still affects you or you still think it's about the it. the most hurtful thing somebody has said and you can't forget. Maybe you're over it, but it was it stuck. I think it was in that case, it has to be the way my stepfather talked about my mother and I couldn't do anything about it. You know, I, I lived in this world of having to try to appease two people and no matter what my stepdad said about my mom, you know, however many hurtful things he said about her, You know, I lived in a environment where I just had to shut up and I couldn't talk back. So I think, you know, as I said, it's not the reason I struggle with this question. It's not something that keeps me up at night, mm. but it's something that was hurtful at the time. And I, I think more so than it being hurtful was the fact that, you know, you can't You just got to shut up and take it. Hmm. What was the most hurtful thing he said? You know, while he's, uh, I think it's always interesting what, uh, I think it's always interesting what insults someone throws at someone because a lot of times it's a reflection of who they are. So, you know, my uh, stepdad was very, uh, had his escapades and, you know, Uh, fooled around and did this and that. And in the same token, you know, he's out here calling my mom a whore and a this and a that. And you're eight years old, you're seven years old. And, you know, you got, I'm, as I said, I lived in such a dictatorship environment where I can't, I want to, I want to kill him in that moment. But you can't, you know, the world I lived in, you just got to shut up and you got to take it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not so much 
the hurtfulness side of things because it's not nice to hear, but it's, you know, it's not like a, it was hurtful. I, I think in life for something to truly be hurtful, there needs to be, there needs to be a small part of you that believes it's true. When you say something to someone, and I think as I said, this is why it's so important for you to unpack mm -hmm. your emotions. When you get criticism from someone and you think, okay, that's your opinion, but I'll, with my best judgment, I can confidently say that's not true. Hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't affect you. You just, you know, rolls off your shoulder. But when someone criticizes you and a small part of you believes that's true, it's going to eat away at you. So the reason I bring that up is it wasn't that part of the equation was missing when he was saying those things about my mom. It was the reason it was hurtful is because I couldn't say anything back. Mm. And it's that feeling of helplessness. What does um, your mother mommy not mean to you? Listen, she's uh, been the most impactful figure in my life. I think of her kind of like, you know, that Olympic torch, like she's that, she's that torch and she lit the flame mm. and she passed it on to me. And I, I don't necessarily think that there was a light before that, you know, my grandparents are incredible humans, but as I said, it's the Soviet union. It's a family of seven. There isn't that direct guidance to a specific child. So I feel like she kind of lit the flame, has passed it on to me. And I'm excited to pass it on to the next generation of our, our lineage. Do you have someone in your life? Because you keep being excited about being a dad. If I may ask. You know, listen, I think as you achieve a lot of things in your life, you tick off certain things. A lot of the things that you wanted to accomplish in your life, you accomplish and you get the things you want in life, you accomplish the things you want in life. I think for me, one challenge that I haven't conquered is being an incredible husband and being an incredible father. So the reason I talk about it so much is because I think it's one of the best things and one of the most fulfilling things you can do in your life. And it's not something that's in front of me right now, but I, I look forward to it. You see how he dodged the question? <laughs> <laughs> we'll let him pass. Um, if, God forbid, mm -hmm. uh, tonight is your last night and you will die. And you have no way before you die to communicate with anybody. Who would you regret not communicating with? I think it's a matter of which one, who would it cause the most pain to if I hadn't communicated with them. Mm. And I think 
you know, I know I keep referencing my mom here. Of course, I love my mom, but it's the reason I reference my mom is because I have no siblings. Mm. I have no father. Like I, when I say my mom, I mean family. And she is my pretty much one and only family. So yeah, it would, when you ask me that question, the thing I think to is there's so many people I'd want to say goodbye to. And there's 10 people in my life that like, they are my, they're the brothers and sisters that, you know, I never got to have. And, you know, even some of them, the uncles that I never got to have. Uh, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, if I did leave this earth without saying goodbye to someone, who would that haunt the most? And for me, that is your direct family. And that means my mom. What would you tell her if you could? I would tell her, listen, I'm about to go. It wasn't my choice. I want to make that clear. <laughs> uh, and I want you to know I had an incredible life and I just talk about how amazing my life was. And yeah, just let her know that, you know, I genuinely can say I've lived life to the fullest. There's been, my life has been the lowest lows and the highest highs. It's been a spectrum of emotions. And I think that's what makes a good life. Hmm. And I would make that very clear because I wouldn't want there to be any remorse or sadness. And I truly mean that if, as I said, God forbid, I go tomorrow, I'll be, I'll be pretty happy. There's a couple of things I didn't manage to do, but I would, I would definitely say that I'll be pretty fulfilled that the life I did live, the short life that I did live, I felt like I lived in a proper way. Last, Iman in one word. Faith. Faith, why? In the most literal sense. Mm. And in the sense that, you know, when I was, I think I was probably maybe seven, six or seven when I started praying and, you know, I always used to, if you're, you know, I'm sure you've been to London, you know, the houses are very, they're about this, this wide and that tall. So, you know, uh, I, my, my bedroom, so yeah, actually, no, I must've been, yeah, seven at this time. Cause until I was seven, I never had my own bedroom. Hmm. Uh, so yeah. I must have been seven at this time on the second floor of my house. When times were really, really tough, I know this sounds crazy, I would always look down to the ground and I would go, I don't, I don't want to do this. And I would look down to the ground and I would think about what would happen if I jumped. And then I'd also think, you're an idiot, you're just going to break your legs and this is going to look stupid. <laughs> you're not going to accomplish anything with this. Uh, but whenever I had those thoughts, I would look up and I'd pray. So I think my life is a testament to faith that you need to have faith in whatever it is that you believe. Um, 
once again, I guess is another one of my harsh opinions. I am, I can be friends with someone from every religion except for an atheist. That's the one uh, religion, and don't get it twisted, it is a religion. You follow the religion of science that I s struggle to get along with as much. You know, if I, so going back to my point, my life has been faith in something bigger than myself and that, you know, there has been a life path set out for me. And there's something bigger than myself who's watching out for me. As long as I live in accordance and idea, as long as I live in the accordance and to the ideals that they would wish. So my life has been faith in something bigger than myself and my life has been faith in the process and my life has been a lot of faith in me mm. and a lot of faith that I will figure things out, which I try my best to do. You will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a 2.44. You were good at this. Thank you. Oh. I hope you enjoyed it. It was amazing. Mm. The funny thing is our slogan is discovering the human behind the title. So how you explain the show or the podcast is what we do. Mm. You know, uh, what, who's Iman? Mm. Who, you know, we see the pictures, we see the nice TikToks, but who is he? Mm. And if I can add there mm. 10%, I've done my job, you know? Yeah, my team, my team warned me to expect some um, uh, waterworks. A lot of people cry. Yeah. My, yeah, my team told me that you guys are the experts of making very strong men cry. <laughs> yeah, I have no. I, I I've always appreciated emotion. Not always. I I'm, I'm lying. Uh, with life, I started to operate because we don't. We're not brought up to mm. to cry. Mm. But now I appreciate because it's raw. It's very human, you know, mm. when they show. But not everybody should cry. You know, yeah. some, some topics become... And I can tell when you're emotional. I can tell how you move your body when you mm. are. But it doesn't have to go anywhere. Mm. You know? Yeah, funnily enough, the thing that makes me cry always is when you see a strong man cry. Yeah. Like, because I'm like, I, I know what it takes as a guy to get to that point where you're emotional. Like, if, when I see, like a, like, a strong guy cry, I'm like, yeah. it fucks me up. Yeah. <laughs> And a lot of women will tell you they can't bear the image of a man in their life crying, like your, their dad mm. or their brother. Mm. It would break women because mm. it's not a common thing. Mm. You know, he's really struggling. You know? mm -hmm. I've had a guy here who said when his brother passed away, he never saw his dad cry, but he saw him walk away from the grave and far. <laughs> and he just knew he was standing and weeping, but he just didn't want to do it in front of everybody. You know, It's tough sometimes to be a guy. <laughs> <laughs>